Welcome back to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I'm your host, Mary Garner-McGee. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. Soundboard also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the TJ FM network. That's T-E-E-J.FM. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Richmond-based journalist Peter Golaska about some ambitious renewable energy goals recently set by Governor Northam. I also talked to UVA alumna Micah Ariel Watson. She's the creator of a new web series called Black Enough that explores what it's like to survive in a black community at a predominantly white university. But first, I sit down with Charlottesville tomorrow for an update on the court case trying to settle the fate of Charlottesville's Confederate monuments. Today we're joined by Charlottesville Tomorrow reporter Charlotte Renee Woods, the editor of Charlottesville Tomorrow, Elliot Robinson, and a special guest, UVA law professor Richard Schrager. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Nice to be here. So we have some news in the fate of Charlottesville's Confederate monuments this week. But let's start at the beginning of this lawsuit. Can you take us back to 2017? The city council first appointed a Blue Ribbon Commission, and uh, that commission made a number of recommendations, most of which were about contextualizing the monuments, not necessarily taking them down or removing them. And then there were some controversial votes on the city council. The city council first did not vote to remove, and then it was only after there was some other events taking place that they did. So uh, what's important about this is just to note that, that there was a long kind of process and a fairly deliberative one, actually, on the part of folks in the city through this commission and through the city council. So Charlottesville City Council ended up voting to take down the Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson statues. And then the city was sued by citizens who claimed that city council didn't have the right to remove the monuments because Virginia's law against removing, quote, war memorials. And this happened after the white supremacist rally in August of 2017. And then afterwards, city council shrouded the monuments in black plastic as a response, just so no one would have to see it. And so another part of the case was that they suffered damages for the 188 days they couldn't see the monuments. So following the white supremacist rally, the city council shrouded the monuments, but those shrouds, like Charlotte said, weren't up for very long. Why did they come down? The one thing that Judge Richard Moore had ruled about it was that he had the expectation of them being up for an even shorter period of time, maybe 30 to 60 days, and when it turned into about six months, he felt that it was coming to the point that it would seem like it would be a permanent or some sort of indefinite basis that they would be up, and that's when he ordered that they would come down. In the meantime, lawyers for the city councilors who were separate from the city council and the city themselves came in and were litigating a number of issues on that issue in particular, and also an equal protection issue, which they raised, which asserted that that the statues themselves violated the 14th Amendment. Could you tell us a little bit about that last part, how the statues violated the 14th Amendment? Sure. This was brought by the city councilors, and again, they were eventually dismissed from the lawsuit. But while they were in the lawsuit, they asserted that they had to order them to be taken down because the statues had been put up both for a racially discriminatory purpose, and they expressed a racially discriminatory message. Under equal protection law, the government's not permitted to undertake acts for racially discriminatory reasons or 
in certain cases to undertake acts that have racially discriminatory effects. And so the claim was that since the statues were put up as part of a white supremacist movement of the 1920s and explicitly to send a message to African-Americans that they were second-class citizens, that this, these were racially discriminatory acts. And how did Judge Richard E. Moore respond to that argument? As I said, he eventually dismissed the city councilors in their individual capacities. The city brought a slightly different claim, which was a claim under the Equal Protection Clause that the state statute that allegedly requires the city to keep the monuments, that that violated the 14th Amendment, not the statues themselves necessarily. And the judge, at least orally in his most recent ruling, said he rejected that argument, that equal protection argument. He also more recently held a hearing or a trial on whether the plaintiffs are entitled to damages for the shrouding of the statue or for other possible damages, emotional damages, it seems like. And he said that, that they're not entitled to those damages. They're only, they'd only be entitled to damages if the monument's been physically somehow damaged or removed. What is the law that bars cities from taking down war memorials called? So I, I don't know the exact name in the state code or in the Commonwealth Code. There's a title. But for shorthand, we've called them a statue statute. Essentially, it's a provision that authorizes the erection of war memorials of various kinds and lists various wars that are appropriate for war memorials for this authorization and lists a whole number of, of wars. And then it restricts the circumstances under which you can remove or change those war memorials. So outside of the city's argument having to do with equal protection, the city also argues that the statue statute doesn't apply in this case, right? Correct. So they argued from the very beginning that the statue statute, which did not apply to cities officially until 1996, it applied to counties, but not cities. The statues were built, the Lee, the Lee and Jackson statues in the city were built in the 1920s. And so the city argued that the restriction on their removal did not apply to statues that had been erected before 1996. And how is this case related to ongoing conversations about the role of the Dillon Rule in Virginia? The Dillon Rule or Dillon's Rule, what it says is that local governments, cities or counties only have the powers that are expressly granted to them. So the General Assembly can grant powers. It can grant broad powers, even if it uses the appropriate language. But all those powers are derived from the General Assembly in terms of what local governments can do. The statute statute, it's a, both a grant and a denial of power to local government. It says you can put these things up, but you can't take them down. What's interesting about the Dillon's rule is that when these statues were put up by the city, there didn't seem to be an authorization, at least not for the Lee statue, uh, direct authorization. So they, they must have put it up under some other power that doesn't have a restriction on it. And that might be an argument that the city brings if they appeal this case. Do people expect upcoming state legislature elections to impact the state of Virginia's Confederate monuments? All 140 seats of General Assembly are up. 
Several of those seats touch on the Charlottesville Albemarle area. Given that there's incumbents and then there's new faces, depending on how elections sway in the makeup of the General Assembly, it's possible that bills like outgoing Delegate David Descano of the 57th District submitted that would allow localities to determine for themselves if they want to keep, contextualize, relocate, or remove their statues. And previously, it has not received a full four vote. It has um, failed in subcommittees. But I know that Sally Hudson, who won the Democratic primary, she would support something similar. So what's next in this case? Judge Moore has to rule on, he's he's stated orally in court that there's uh, no equal protection defense and no damages under the statute. I don't know if he'll issue a a written ruling to that effect, but then he's taken evidence on, on attorney's fees. There's a question whether attorney's fees are appropriate if there haven't been any damages. The judge, I think, is inclined to give some attorney's fees to the plaintiffs, and the question is how much. And then my suspicion is that this, the city will appeal this to the Virginia Supreme Court. One of the things that we love about Charlottesville Tomorrow's reporting is that it helps us better understand and engage with the issues in our community. So every week we end this segment by asking everyone, what's on your calendar this week? What should we put on our calendars? I guess for Charlottesville Tomorrow, next week, uh, Ibram X. Kendi, uh, he's an American author and historian from American University in D.C. He's going to be in town my colleague Emily Hayes and I are arranging a sit-down interview with him, and we are hoping to be joined by Andrea Douglas and or Jelaine Schmidt. So we're going to talk a little bit more about monuments in a different capacity, but um, it'll be a nice conversation between all of us. And also next Thursday at 8.30 in the morning, we will be supplying coffee while we have a conversation about Emily Hayes's Development Digest. Thank you all so much for being with us. Thanks for having us. Sure. Thank you, guys. Charlotte Renee Woods is a reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow, Elliot Robinson is the editor, and Richard Schrager is a professor at the University of Virginia School of Law. For more history and context about the people who put these monuments up, check out WTJU's project, Marked by These Monuments. You can find it at thesemonuments.org. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Tej FM Network. T-E-E-J.FM. WTJU and TJFM are both a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. For an update on statewide news, Nathan Moore rings up our friend in Richmond. Well, here on Soundboard, we cover state news and politics, and as we do each week, we talk to our friend and journalist Peter Galaska. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion and is based in the Richmond area. Peter, good morning. Good morning. So let's uh, talk about state elections. We have elections coming up here in Virginia, one of a very small number of states that has these off-off-year elections. And uh, Mm -hmm. we are electing everybody in the state Senate, the state House of Delegates, and plus a whole bunch of local races. Um, Let's talk about some of those state races, especially the state Senate. There are new reports. All the campaign finance reports just came out from the last cycle. Um, I don't like to do horse race coverage too much, but let's talk about the money people are raising and what that says about this. Okay. Um, as you know, right now, uh, there are 21 Republicans in the Senate compared to 19 um, uh, Democrats. And um, so that's in play. The Senate's in play. For that matter, so is the House of Delegates, 51 to 49, right now in favor of the GOP. So just turning two or three seats could really change the entire focus of the state. 
What you're seeing now, though, you're seeing kind of a fundamental shift. You're seeing a lot more fundraising and a lot more power for the Democrats. And part of that could be a reaction to Trump. Part of that could be a reaction against Dominion, which is, you know, actually funded both parties. But anyway, I just want to start out with a little little factoid here uh, from the Virginia Mercury and the Department of Elections that uh, from August two, 2015 to August uh, 2019, that voted registrations were up 9% in Democratic strongholds, but only 6% in, in Republican strongholds, which sort of leads to the sort of new bluing of Virginia uh, trend that we've been seeing for a couple of years now. I mean, that indicates that at least for statewide races, there's just more Democratic voters than Republican voters relative to what there were four years ago. I mean, exactly. You know, we're all kind of reading the tea leaves here, but that seems to suggest that, that we're going to have more Democrats elected to statewide office if turnout remains the same. Well, that's logical. Now, of course, anything can happen between now and then. I mean, you know, between now and, and November. But it, it, but it does show, I mean, that, you know, you look at Democratic strongholds. For example, Northern Virginia has always been pretty blue. But if you look around Richmond, for instance, um, for the longest time, the suburbs of uh, Henrico and Chesterfield uh, were, were really staunchly Republican. That's changing. That's changing a lot. And to some extent, it's changing in other, you know, major, uh, you know, populated areas like Virginia Beach. And, for example, in um, uh, the 8th Senate District uh, down in Virginia Beach, Missy uh, Cotter Smalthall has, you know, raised so far, according to, I think it's September 15th, $240,000, whereas her opponent, Bill DeStaff, has only raised $175,000. And you look further into in my home district, which is the uh, 10th uh, Senate district, which covers western parts of Chesterfield in that area, western Chesterfield, um, Gozala Hashmi, who is an educator and a Democrat, has, is outraised by you know $269,000. Glenn Sturdivant, who is uh, considered an up-and-coming Republican, he's only raised about $138,000. So what I'm hearing here is that in some of the, the, the biggest competitive races for state Senate this year. Uh, the Democrats are, are holding their own, if not out fundraising the Republicans in some of these races. Yeah, it's it's really kind of interesting. And because, I mean, it used to be, you know, you can you know, write this playbook in your sleep. I mean, you know, you don't need to look at the funding and just say, oh, Republicans are going to get all this money, a lot of it from the usual big corporate interests such as Dominion or Altria. Um, but that's changing. I know a lot of Republicans are, are really pretty worried. The edge is so razor thin in both house, both the Senate and the House of Delegates. Just, just a few seats could really change the whole picture. And the other problem, of course, there's another problem with the GOP, you could say to some extent also with the Democrats, but the, the state GOP has been in disarray with internal leadership issues for at least a year or two now. And they don't really have a clear message. I mean, their message used to be pretty straightforward. You know, we want pro-business laws, no regulation. We want you to have, you know, all the assault rifles you can carry. And, you know, on it goes. I'm exaggerating, of course, but that's really pretty much the way it's been. And now, I mean, a lot of Virginians want gun control. Um, A lot of Virginians um, are sick and tired of being, you know, run over by by big companies. And... um, and so there, there is a reaction to that kind of old-line GOP thinking. Well, thanks, Peter. I want to switch, to a, switch gears to another story about Governor Ralph Northam. He made a big announcement this mm-hmm. week about rolling out uh, or setting a goal for all renewable energy in Virginia uh, in just the mm-hmm. next few decades. Um, what's this announcement about? It seems like a big deal. 
It is. I mean, it's an executive order. I, for one, am not 100% certain what that means because, you know, Northam obviously is a one-term by state law governor. Um, but what he's doing is he's outlining a plan that by 2030, year 2030, 30% of Virginia's electrical uh, system must be powered by renewable energy resources, which would include such things as wind and solar. And uh, also contributing would be um, conservation and new measures to conserve energy. And um, and by 2050, 100% of Virginia's electricity will be come from carbon-free sources. And um, this is really kind of, I mean, the, the good news here is that he's stating clearly what a lot of environmentalists have been pushing for a long time, meaning you need to really make a commitment to renewable energy. And that, you know, Virginia, for example, in renewables is far behind. I mean, states like North Carolina are far ahead of Virginia, especially in solar. I mean, you just cross the North Carolina border, um, you know, you can just see, you know, acres and acres and acres of uh, solar panels. That's just beginning really in Virginia. It's pretty small. And um, so that's good. Um, you know, it kind of makes the big utilities like um, uh, Dominion and Appalachian Power um, kind of really, you know, focuses them to to really you know increase renewable, but there's some problems with the plan too. And what are the problems? Well, I mean, the, the weird thing is is that um, when Northam made his announcement, the order, um, there's no mention of nuclear power. And I mean, Virginia has four reaction or four reactors and generating power stations, Surrey and Northana, run by Dominion, and. Um, you know, they don't produce carbon, but there are a lot of questions, of course, of nuclear power, especially with waste. And there was an earthquake a few years ago that really kind of kind of messed up North Anna a bit. Um, and so, you know, those, those are those are the questions that haven't been answered. And if you need a base load, a base load means basically, you know, to make sure the power is on when you need it, you know, regardless of whether it's dark and you can't use solar or there's no wind or whatever. And nukes really do provide a good bit of the base load in Virginia. The problem with the nukes is they're old. Both were built in the you know 60s and 70s. They need to be relicensed. I mean, a lot of their gears getting old. And the other aspect of this that Northam never brought up is are the two pipelines, uh, Atlantic Coast Pipeline um, and Mountain Valley, which both use natural gas. And natural gas is also ignored in this order. I don't know what that means. So you've got Northam for the last couple of years sort of vaguely supportive of the pipelines and sort of vaguely supportive of nuclear, and then this kind of big deal order that, that doesn't address either. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it just doesn't make sense to me. These issues are not addressed, and it's very curious. Well, what do you think comes next with this? Well, I think what comes next is, you know, just, just more steps for the same. Um, you know, the other thing I can't understand is this uh, regional uh, – Gas House Initiative, Reggie, which uh, I think are 10 states involved with it now, mostly in the Northeast, where you have a cap-and-trade program, carbon, you know, to buy and sell carbon rights. And the Republicans in Virginia are dead set against it. Um, the utilities are against it. And um, I'm not sure that's supposed to come up. Uh, it was kind of didn't go anywhere this year, but maybe if there's a new a General Assembly, it will. That's the next step to see if we join Reggie, which would have somewhat similar requirements. And a lot of the opponents of Reggie say, well, we've cut down carbon already. Well, really, you know. So well, that, I think that's the next step. Well, Peter, thanks so much. I appreciate you taking the time today. Okay. Thank you. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion. 
You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Tej FM network. TEEJ.FM. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. Today we call up Micah Ariel Watson and Josh Palmer. Micah is the creator of a new web series titled Black Enough. Josh Palmer is one of the producers. Thanks for talking to us today. Of course. Glad to be here. Happy to be here. Let's start with a clip from the web series. This is the top of the series from episode one, and it's a voiceover that poses some questions that I think are really critical to the spine of the series and that we're going to answer over 13 episodes. What makes up a Black girl? Is it the curves, the walk, the fierce tenderness, the way language dances through our lips, the poetry of thoughts, the audacity of hair to throw middle fingers to physics and defy gravity? Or maybe it's scientific ingredients of a recipe that rises into melanin imperfection, a formula that separates them from me. I once heard that black girls were concocted by God, his kinky-headed works of art. But a painting is only a masterpiece if somebody else says so. I heard that we were weaved together back before the womb, knitted knowing that our beauty is tied to something beyond, something vast, something holy. I heard that we were made with so much wonder that the world had no choice but to fear our flyness stamped with the magic so spiritual that angels and colonizers alike want to get like us, get like God, grow their wings nappy, touch the hem of our fullness. Carriers of an image so grand, it took a legion of us to reflect it. We used to know we were made of the same stuff as supernovas till the super got separated from the natural and we expected each other to be superhuman. So now, we grab at the superficial, letting lies supersede the truth with the capital T. We stretch ourselves into superwomen that we never had to be in the first place. Because somebody said, some of us are less than loved. I heard that too. Some stories really stick. In addition to Micah on that clip, you also hear Tiffany Gordon and Vitamin C featuring Flower Child. What inspired you to create this web series? Oh, man. This web series was definitely born out of my own experience at UVA in Charlottesville, trying to figure out, you know, what it means to be Black at a PWI, but more specifically what it means to be Black in Black spaces at a, a PWI 
I was just coming out of undergrad, graduated in 2018, and I just started writing this thing. I didn't know exactly what it was, but it started reflecting my experience and my own insecurities and things that I was really still struggling with and in some ways kept on myself on the other side of. So I just wanted to write this maybe as a cathartic, reflective thing for me, but then it turned really into more something where I could sort of share my story with other people, help them get to the other side of their insecurities. The word magic is really present on your website and throughout the series. What does that word magic mean to you? Well, I think the series is really about like questioning what magic is, like more specifically questioning what black girl magic is. Because it's this term that we see all the time in social media and pop culture. And it became this thing that I felt like I had to live up to. So I'm feeling like I have to live up to black girl magic. But then I'm like, what is magic? So I think to answer your question... We find through the series that magic can kind of be whatever we need it to be. It's something that exists within us. It's like our inner essence, that thing that's kind of intangible, inexplicable, but the thing that we're always kind of searching for, you know, like our our inner truth. And I know that's all super abstract, but I think, I don't know, I find it hard to answer like what the question, what magic is, because I think I'm still trying to figure that out, what black girl magic is every day. Here on Soundboard, we talk almost every week about equity in Charlottesville, often in the context of UVA, which is a predominantly white university like the one in your web series. What do you think people living in Charlottesville can gain through watching this web series? The university that's described in Black Enough called Weston College is definitely not unlike <laughs> UVA, um, to put it lightly. Um, and, and I think it centers the black spaces in spaces that we traditionally see as white. And I think that Charlottesville can really learn a lot from that. Like UVA has this huge looming presence in the city. And when outsiders think of Charlottesville, they think of UVA and they think of the KKK. And I think that this show is about the fact that there's more to university towns. There's more to life than uh, just the, the powers that be that sort of cast this huge shadow over people. So what I found in my, my summer in Charlottesville, which I hadn't really spent a summer in Charlottesville until I shot this series, was that there's so many more shades and colors to the city than what I was able to see as a student. And I found that through the businesses we were able to interact with through production, um, through host families and whatnot. I think people in Charlottesville who aren't associated with the university can still see themselves in the series because it's not really about the the infrastructure and the logistics of the university. I think we took a pro- an approach on this project where not just about us, it's not just about the film, but it is part of the whole community. And, and I think the fact we worked with restaurants and places around town, we did our best to include members of Charlottesville in cast and crew. And I think going forward with, with how we want to roll this out, we, we don't want it to just be something people watch, but something that kind of has a tangible effect. Where can you find this web series? You can find us a few places. The easiest way to catch the web series is to go to youtube.com slash C slash black enough. So youtube.com slash C slash black enough. You can also catch us on social media and that's at black enough underscore underscore. And then our website is black dash enough.com. All those places can tell you more about us and then we'll link you to the series itself. It comes out on September 29th, Sunday, September 29th at 6 p.m. And we are super excited. We have a premiere in Charlottesville coming up at Lighthouse on the 28th of September, the day before premieres online. And that'll be at 3 p.m. And during 
this fall. We're partnering with The Bridge, uh, which is in an art space uh, in Charlottesville for kind of consistent showings of the series. So every, you know, three or four episodes, we'll be doing that. So look out for that on, on their Facebook. So far, it looks like it'll be a couple Sundays uh, throughout the fall, but we're still kind of ironing out details. Well, thank you all so much for talking with us. Of course. This was great. Thanks for having us. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. We hope you learned something new this week, and if you did, please subscribe and share Soundboard with your friends. My name is Mary Garner-McGee, production assistance this week by Justine Baird. Our theme song is Chioga Beat by Moreno Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or podcast home at TJFM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M.